Our study this morning is in the book of Luke chapter 23. So let's take our Bibles and turn there. Luke chapter 23. This morning we are celebrating the greatest truth in the history of the world. It is the greatest truth in the history of the world, and it is a truth that completely transforms lives, not just here on earth, because it does in so many ways, but for all eternity. It brings freedom and joy and contentment and peace and wisdom and security into our lives. But this greatest truth, this this world-changing truth, is also the most polarizing truth in the world. In one light, it's the greatest thing that anybody can hear. But in another light, it is what divides and separates people. Because everybody has got an opinion about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everyone either believes the truth and they trust in it and it changes their lives or they reject it. And they refuse to believe that this actually happened. And that faith or that denial is the single determining factor in where each person will spend eternity. Now, one truth, that's all it takes, just one truth will determine where we spend the rest of our lives. And that might seem like an exaggeration to people, but it is the reality of our lives. What you believe about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important decision you'll make. Nothing else compares. Nothing else is even in the same zip code or the same continent or the same universe as that one decision. So what we believe and how we respond determines how we will live because conviction governs action. What you believe, what you carry in your mind, what you believe about faith and about Jesus Christ and about the Bible will govern your action. If you believe in it with all your heart and it drives your life, then it will dictate how you live. But if you reject it and you deny it and you say that's not true, there's no way, then that will govern who you are too. And that's where this day, this this resurrection day, when we praise the Lord for rising from the grave, that becomes a challenge for a lot of people because so many people, and maybe this describes you this morning, so many people are not really sure what to believe. They go to church and and they believe in God. 75 to 80% of the country this morning believes in God. But, But believing in God and trusting in Jesus are two different things. A lot of people believe in God, but when you look at the evidence of our culture, not a lot of people trust in Jesus Christ. Because to trust in Jesus as your Savior, it requires admitting your sin. It requires hating your sin so much that you confess it to God and say, God, I need you to cleanse me. I need you to change me. And the only way that can happen is through Jesus Christ alone. Because as we studied Friday night, and we're going to affirm this morning, he defeated our sins on the cross. How many believe that this morning and are happy for that? He defeated our sins on the cross, and he defeated death through his resurrection. And that is the only issue out of all the decisions you'll make in the course of your life. That is the only issue that you have to decide about. You can decide about a house. You don't have to live in a house. You don't have to drive a car. You don't have to go to work. There are a lot of things you can avoid in life. But not one person who has ever lived can avoid making a decision about Jesus Christ. So let me just ask at the outset, what's your decision? What's your conviction 
about Jesus. Because when we look at the cross, when we look at the people that are gathered around the cross, we see different reactions people had toward Jesus. And I identified six, and I want to run through them real quickly this morning and maybe take some notes this morning to just interact with the text. But there are six different reactions that I see that people have toward Jesus. The first one was from the religious and the political leaders. They were happy. Not happy because Jesus was taking their sins to the cross. Not happy because the tomb of empty, was empty. They were happy because they had opposed Jesus. And this is what they thought was their victory. This was them saying, we finally accomplished it. See, they had been so jealous of the people who followed Jesus. And they were jealous that people had ignored them. But the, the greater infection of their hearts was pride. The greater infection of their hearts was self-righteousness. They believed that they knew everything and that they didn't really need God at the end of the day. And they hated the fact that Jesus had exposed them. He had called them out for their pride and their self-righteousness. So they resisted him and they accused him and they challenged him. And pretty much from the outset of his ministry, they plotted to kill him. And when it came time and Jesus came into Jerusalem, they were hoping that the Romans would, would carry out the execution so they wouldn't kind of be accountable. And then when Jesus finally goes to the cross, they are so happy, they're thrilled that he is actually going to be dead and out of their hair. Reaction number two is the criminal who was crucified next to Jesus. And he is defiant. Like the majority of the crowd, he rejected Jesus. See, in his rebellious arrogance, he's on the cross, and he's guilty. Jesus is innocent, but he's guilty, and he's mocking Jesus, and he's yelling at Jesus and, and uh, devaluing his credibility and saying, well, you're some kind of savior. Look at you. You're up on the cross. How could you claim to be the Lord of all? And like the crowd who had chanted, crucify, 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 they're all standing there just looking at him, refusing to believe that he actually could be who he said he was. Hearts so hardened by sin. You know, a lot of people this morning are just hardened by their sin. They just don't want anything to do with God. They not only don't believe in God, they certainly would never believe in Jesus. Then you have, third, the Roman soldiers. And they're powerful and respected. There was nobody like a Roman soldier. So strong. We'll talk about them in a couple minutes. But, but they were in charge of controlling lives. And yet, as they stand there and Jesus is on the cross, they're calloused and indifferent. I think this is where a lot of people live. They're carrying out another execution. This was nothing new for them. This wasn't unique to them. This was just another person. Jesus was another person to kill. They didn't care what had happened. They didn't care about his popularity or the criticisms. They didn't care what he had taught or miracles he had done. He was just another body to kill. And they were so disaffected by their circumstances and so, so uh, numb to the brutality of how they were living that, that they didn't even think twice about what they were doing. They had just compartmentalized their emotion and their conviction. Again, I think this is where most people live. It's kind of dull, just kind of numb, indifferent, not, not kind of interested, not really thinking about it, just, just kind of going through life day after day, no real purpose, no real end game, just kind of existing, hoping to get to the next day. But there was one soldier, the centurion, and he was so convinced, 
so sure that Jesus was really the Son of God that he publicly testifies about his faith. And as he watches Jesus, he witnesses the humanity and the humility and the silence of Jesus as he doesn't speak back to his accusers. He's just calmly, even though he's in brutal agony, he's calmly on the cross. And the centurion watches. He's over many people. And he sees Jesus pray for his killers. He sees Jesus not lash out and, and do what he could have done as the righteous judge of all mankind. He sees him just endure the cross. And as the centurion watches that, he's equally afraid and amazed. And his faith explodes. And he says, surely this is the Son of God. This man is innocent. There's no way he is accused of these charges, that he's guilty of them. This man is innocent. He's the Son of God. And in the same way, the criminal the other criminal on the other side of Jesus says, I believe in you. Forgive me. I'm sorry. I want to go to heaven too. And Jesus says, today. Today happens right now. So we see those who oppose Jesus. We see those who reject Jesus. We see those who are callous and indifferent. We see those who are convinced. And then we see his followers. When Jesus is arrested, many of his followers are scared and they know that the future is kind of uncertain and they don't know what to believe. They had walked with Jesus and they had, had kind of followed him, but now comes the time that's kind of a spiritual crucible and, and when that happens, their faith is tentative and they're influenced by their circumstances. So when Jesus is crucified, they, they lose hope. They, they run and hide. They're not really believing what he had told them that I'm going to be crucified and the third day I'm going to rise again. They're, they're, they're just only living in the moment and living by the circumstance. And they'll only regain their faith when they see Jesus face to faith. You know, faith is what we believe when we can't see it. It's easy to believe something you know. I believe this platform will hold me up. I believe if I walk around, I won't fall through because it was built very well. I watched the construction. I have faith in this platform. But if this platform wasn't there and you told me to step up on it, I'd say, mm, I can't, that's not going to happen. See, we have to believe in something we've never seen. We read about it. We hear about it. We know in our hearts it's right. But we've never seen Jesus face to face. And there were people that had that said, I'm not going to believe he's alive until I see him face to face. Don't live like that. That's not really faith. That's, that's uh, hedging your bets until you can see it and know it for sure. And then before we get into the text, there was a sixth group. And those were the ones who were faithful. Those are the ones whose conviction was strong because they loved Jesus. Four women, John, a couple other apostles who are standing at the cross. Think about the enormous peer pressure. Their Savior had just been accused and arrested and put to death. And they're at risk of their own lives for identifying with him as Peter felt when he was in the, in the garden and denied Christ three times because he was scared of the retribution. Now they're the ones who are at the tomb. Now when the word of the angels comes, Jesus is alive, the Lord is risen, tell me. Oh, that was weak. Tell me again, the Lord is risen. Right. They hear that, right? They come to the tomb. The tomb's open. And they hear the angels. And the angels say, why are you here? Why are you looking for Jesus? He's not here. He's alive. 
And instead of being fearful, they believe that. And then they go tell others, hey, the Lord's risen. Jesus is alive. This has happened. Just like he said. That's where we want to live. We want to live in faithful conviction. Now, which one describes you this morning? If you had been standing at his trial, or you had walked by when he was on the cross, or you heard the eyewitnesses' account that he was alive, what would you have done? How would you have responded? Would you have believed then, and what do you believe now? Because there are two irrefutable facts that we're going to study this morning. The first one is that the cross is empty, and the second one is that the tomb is empty. So let's start with the cross. Look at the text here in Luke chapter 23. And let's read what happened after he died, starting in verse 50. A man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. A man of Arimathea, city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This is a righteous man, not like the rest of the people that he's hanging around. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down off the cross, and he wrapped it in a linen cloth, and he laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was a preparation day. The Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed, and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes, and on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. See, Jesus is not still hanging on the tree this morning. The cross is empty. He's not up there lifeless, some kind of fraud, some kind of, uh, of, of social pariah who's proven to be just a mother man who claimed to be something that he wasn't. Jesus made, when you think about it, he made some really outrageous claims. He said that he and God were one. He said that all authority in heaven and earth had been given to him. He said that no one will be accepted by God or go to heaven except through him. Now, a lot of people in history have declared themselves great. A lot of people in history have said that they are brilliant and that they're worthy of being followed and then they become dominant and demand that people obey him. But, but this is far beyond that. This is someone saying without equivocation that he is God. This is someone who's saying that there is no hope of salvation if we don't trust in him alone. Now, a person like that should be dismissed by history. But even 2,000 years later, we are discussing his death. We're discussing his resurrection. And it is so historically significant that, that people are debating it and, and studying it all over the world this morning. Billions of people, when you say the name of Jesus, they instantly know that he was crucified in Jerusalem. They may say there's no God, there, there's no Savior, but when you say the name of Jesus, instantly they think of the cross. And even if they reject him, they also know that he claimed to be here to save us. And that he went to the cross to bear our guilt and our shame, to pay the penalty we deserve because our sins have condemned us to death. Now the people who killed him thought they were getting rid of him. They thought that was the end of it. They thought it was completely done, that history was done, and they thought that once the cross was empty, that it was all over, and it was, just not in the way they thought. Because they thought they were rid of him. 
But here's what the empty cross does. The empty cross communicates that Jesus' work is done. Jesus' work is done. Think about the picture of the empty cross. Think about what it teaches us about what Jesus has done. I, I was thinking about what is on the cross because we see this cross that's here and it's made out of wood and it's got the linen draped across us. But think about what the cross that day looked like and what it had on it. First of all, it had on it the nail prints. The nail prints, as they took those big spikes and they ran them through his wrists and they put them through his legs and they pounded them in, the pain beyond comprehension, as they bang, 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 bang. And that nail had to go right into the wood, just like when we built this cross, we had to make sure that the screws went all the way back so it doesn't fall down. Well, those nails, those spikes were driven through his flesh and through his muscle right into the back of that cross. And that reminds us of Isaiah. Because Isaiah says, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastising of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, were healed. In other words, he was punished. And he was tortured. And he was killed in our place, even though we deserved it. And it was an unimaginable, brutal, vicious death. The physical cruelty was so thorough that as we said Friday night, the Bible says that he didn't even look like a man anymore. That he was tortured beyond recognition that you couldn't even say that's a human being. He was marred so thoroughly. But there is no question that beyond the physical torture, that the spiritual ferocity of what he dealt with in having every single sin that's ever been committed, that weight that that video talked about, that weight was laid on him, and the condemnation of sin was laid on him, and he was hung on that tree bearing trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of our sins. And then to just add insult to injury, people spat on him and mocked him and joked about him and tormented him. But it was necessary. See, the cross was necessary because without the cross, there's no empty tomb. Without the cross, without Jesus being our substitute, without him taking our place, there is no hope, there's no confidence, there's no heaven, there is just death and hell. So those nail prints tell us about freedom. Then we see on the empty cross, Jesus' bloodstains. Now, there's nothing easy about it. When you really think about the reality of the cross, we, we tend to have very emotionally sanitized images. Even at the end of the video, they show Jesus, and he had the, the stripes of blood on his back. And it's a, it's a beautiful video, but that doesn't capture it. His flesh was torn apart. His back was opened up. The whips that had the claws on the end and the little round iron balls that would just tear into the flesh and pull as they scourged him again and again and again. It wasn't little lines of blood. He was a bloody mess. 
And that blood was necessary because in the Old Testament sacrificial system, when the lamb was killed, it wasn't just kind of laid on the altar and burned. They took it and they would cut its throat and the blood would pour out on the altar. I know that's not a happy image on Easter, but that's what happened. The blood was poured out because that was the only way salvation could be atoned for. That was the only way that, that sins would be covered because there were no good works that were enough. So the blood had to be shed. The blood had to be poured out. And those lambs were without physical blemish. But Jesus says, that's not a permanent solution. That's every year we got to do the same thing. But now I'm coming to be the eternal solution. I'm going to fulfill the law. And I'm going to go to the cross. And I'm going to be the lamb that's slain for you. So when you see the blood on the cross, know that that's making the payment for sin. And then on that empty cross, we see the sign. King of the Jews. That was written for a twofold reason. One, it was written to mock him. Because he had been accused of that. That he was trying to be the king. And everybody was, was threatened by that. So they put that up there. Ah, oh, he said he was the king of the Jews. Look at him now. But Pilate also put that sign up here as a way of getting back at the Jews. Because he wanted them to know that he was not happy that they had roped them into putting Jesus to death. So Pilate wrote that sign in three languages. He wrote it in Hebrew, which was the language of the Jews. And he wrote it in Greek, which was the language of the world. And he wrote it in Latin, which was the ancient language of humanity. And I was thinking about that this week. Look at how God used that. Because every single person that walked by could read it. Every single person that saw that knew that it was to make fun of Jesus, but it actually conveyed a truth that was far beyond what they imagined because Jesus is not only the king of the Jews, he is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And one day, every knee is going to bow and every single tongue that has ever lived is going to confess, tell me what they're going to say, that Jesus Christ is Lord. So as they walked by and as they saw Jesus hanging there, that sign communicated. So when Jesus said his last words, it is finished, that was a statement that the work had been done, that he had been crucified, that the payment had made, that redemption was now available forever through him. It is a powerful, wonderful truth, and it gives us hope. And Paul says in Galatians 6, May I never boast in anything but the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. May there never be any time that I look at myself and say, Look at me, I'm wonderful, because we're not wonderful. The only thing that's wonderful is the name of Jesus. And he saved us, and he forgave us. And even though the cross is empty, it's not because Jesus is still dead. He's not dead. He was placed in the tomb. We see it in the passage we read, or we're about to read. Or no, we just read it. Sorry, lost track. Joseph of Arimathea, look back at the text, comes along. He's a man of the council that had put Jesus to death, but he wasn't consenting. He was a good and righteous man. He goes to Pilate and says, I want to take the body. And he takes it, and he wraps it in a linen cloth. And he puts it in the tomb. Now, we know the cross is empty. And that wouldn't matter to anybody in history. 
If it was just a man who was killed and the cross was empty and he was put in a tomb and that was it, that wouldn't be anything. We wouldn't be talking about this. We wouldn't have church. We wouldn't do this on Sunday. We wouldn't read a Bible. We wouldn't care at all about anything, which is why the fact that his grave is empty and no one has ever found his body is the reason that we celebrate this morning. Because here's the second thought. The empty tomb assures us that Jesus has won eternal victory over sin and death. The debate back then and the debate even today is what really happened. What really happened? I mean, did Jesus really rise from the grave or was this the most elaborate hoax, the most elaborate deception in all of history? Now, of course, the Jews and the Romans who crucified him wanted people to believe that. They, they claimed that the disciples stole the body. And every skeptic and every non-believer since then has argued that the resurrection is not real. They've dismissed it. They refuse to believe it. But here's the thing. If the resurrection is true, if Jesus really did defeat death, if Jesus really did rise from the grave, as he said, listen now, if that's true, then everything else he said is true. And if everything else he said is true, and he really rose from the grave, then he is the Savior, and he has absolute authority. He has won victory over sin and death, which also means that he is able to save anybody who repents of their sin and trusts in him alone. So let's examine a couple quick facts about the empty tomb. Look at chapter 24, verse 1. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they'd prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise again? And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now, I want to give you a couple thoughts about the tomb this morning because it was not the only thing that was empty. First, we see that the tomb was empty because no soldiers were there. Now think about that, because the Romans were the most disciplined, the finest soldiers, the most loyal on the face of the earth. The Roman soldiers were warriors. They never, ever failed. And you can be sure that because of all the controversy around Jesus, and because Pilate was so fed up with the whole thing, that he put the best of the best at the tomb to make sure that nothing happened. Now, it is completely illogical. Let's, let's argue facts here. It's completely illogical that these soldiers, who are the finest in the, in the whole world, would be completely somehow surprised and overpowered by some fishermen and tax collectors, who, when Jesus had run away, uh, was arrested, had run away. Roman soldier never left their post. If you left your post as a Roman soldier, it meant death. So, so if the disciples somehow defeated them, 
This is a new insight to me last night. If the disciples somehow defeated them, they either would have had to kill them and dispose of their bodies, or the soldiers would have had to run away in disgrace, which is not even worth discussing because it's so outlandish of a thought. So the first thing we see at the empty tomb is there are no soldiers there. The second thing we see in the text is there's no stone there. Now remember, this was sealed by the Romans, which meant that it could not be opened unless the person who sealed it, the governor, the one who was in charge, authorized it being opened. And this stone was so huge, so gigantic, that it took at least three to four men to move it. And yet we see in verse 2 that when the women got there, it was rolled away. So even if the disciples had somehow overcome the Romans or lured them away, they would have had enough time, had to have enough time to, to break the seal and get it open before more soldiers showed up and arrested them. So when we look at the empty tomb, there are no soldiers, there's no stone. Third thing is that when you looked in the tomb, there was no body. Jesus was gone. So a lot of people said, well, okay, well, this, uh, somehow, we don't know about those first two things, but somehow the disciples stole Jesus' body and took him somewhere else and hid him and then perpetuated this hoax that, that Jesus had risen from the grave. All right, well, let's examine that. Either Jesus actually rose from the grave and defeated it, or the s disciples somehow took care of the soldiers, broke the seal, rolled back the stone, and took Jesus' corpse. So ask yourself, how would they have snuck through town carrying his body? And where in the world would they have hidden it? Because if they had him somewhere, there would have been a massive search to find the body because the Jews and the Romans would have done anything under the face of the sun to dispel any rumors and quash this whole thing. Finding the body of Jesus Christ would have been the greatest verification that everything he said was a lie, that he had no business presenting himself as the Son of God. And if that had happened, if they had done a major search and they had found his body, the whole movement of Christianity would have been extinguished. But here's the thing. There is no historical record of anybody finding Jesus. There's not even a record of a search and wouldn't you think that if Jesus' body was still in a grave somewhere, that there would have been some kind of excavation, that somebody would go out because that would be the greatest archaeological find of all time. Now, why didn't anybody look for him? I have to believe because the Jews and the Romans knew the truth. They knew that the Roman soldiers hadn't left their post and they hadn't been defeated. They knew that the disciples had not stolen the body. They knew the truth. So we've got no soldiers. We've got no stone. We've got no body. And then there's one more important detail, and you can look at it later in John chapter 20, because John is an eyewitness in saying that the tomb is empty. He says the covering that was on Jesus' face 
because they would put cloths all around and they'd wrap the body in linen, in burial clothes. So there was a cloth that was put on Jesus' face that would cover him. Well, John says that when he got there and looked, at the t- looked in the tomb, that the cloth that was covering Jesus' face wasn't with all the linen wrappings that had come off of his body. It was over to the side, and the cloth that had rolled up, that was around his face, had been rolled up. Now, let's assume for a second that the disciples actually had stolen Jesus. Don't you think that if they're carrying a corpse through Jerusalem, that they're going to keep that cloth over his face? Because the last thing they're going to want to do in their sorrow is see Jesus' face dead. And it would be kind of obvious if you're carrying a body through Jerusalem and somebody comes up, they know this guy's not alive. So they would have kept it there. And even if they didn't, even if they had discarded that, do you think they would have really taken the time to roll it up? Hey, guys, we've got to be real neat and tidy here. So get the body, okay? Let's unwrap the body. And and Peter, you roll up that face cloth, okay? So Peter's over there rolling it, rolling. Okay, I think, does that look tight enough? Is that good? Okay, there? No. They would have tried to get out of there as fast as they possibly could. And if you're carrying a dead body, it's the last time I'll say it. If you're carrying a dead body, you're not going to unwrap it, right? It makes no sense that the disciples would have stolen the body. But what is sure is that the tomb is empty. And as the angels say, why are you seeking the living among the dead? You came here, you're surprised, you found the tomb open, and we're here to tell you that Jesus is alive, that, that the Lord is risen. Tell me, Jesus is alive, right? So, so why, are you, why are you looking for something that doesn't exist? Don't you remember the words that he told you? Don't you remember that he said on the third day, I'm going to rise again? Listen, disciples, listen, believer, listen, non-believer this morning. The empty tomb means victory is accomplished forever. It means that Jesus is not still on the cross. Jesus is not still dead. He has defeated sin. He's defeated death. He's defeated hell. He's defeated condemnation. He's defeated the bondage that is over us because of sin. And his sacrifice brings victory. And it's available to any person who believes. So that brings us back where we started. Let's finish. This is the greatest truth in the history of the world. And it demands a decision. Because your salvation and my salvation, our eternal future rests on the fact that Jesus is alive. And here's the problem. There's no middle ground with this. Either Jesus Christ is God in flesh, either he came to rescue us from our sin and the eternal condemnation and judgment that goes along with it. Either he came to sacrifice himself in my place and put sin and death to to death forever and to gain victory by rising from the grave. Either he's that or he's anything but that. There's no middle ground. There's no equivocation. Anything less than the absolute Savior of mankind nullifies him, nullifies his claims. It devalues him. It makes him like anybody else who has ever lived or died. So, come back to it. What you believe 
how you respond will determine how you live. Not just now, not in the 70, 80 years that we have on this earth, but for all eternity. And every person, listen, every person needs to trust him with their lives. So, what are you doing with Jesus? Do you trust him? Do you believe in him? Is it kind of, well, I don't know, Paul, it's kind of shaky, and I'm not real sure. I need a little more evidence, and I got to think through it. I got a lot of stuff going on in my life. Listen, today is the day of decision. Today is the day of salvation, because what's going to change it tomorrow? What's going to convince you more tomorrow that this is the reality? Because for how many years of your life you haven't been convinced? How many years of your life you've just been going on the same path and nothing's changed? But I'm telling you this morning, the tomb is empty. There's nobody there. And that means that he has won victory. So if you're ready this morning, you're ready to turn from your sin. You're ready to repent of your sin. You're ready to trust in Jesus Christ. I want to tell you, we will be up here after the service. And you can ask God to save you today. I know you got lunch, you got other things to do. Listen, there's nothing more important than eternity. And if you want to know more about that, you'd like somebody to pray with you, you'd like somebody to explain it to you. There will be people up here when the service ends, and you can come up and we'll talk to you and we'll encourage you. You tell about new life in Christ because your life can be transformed today. And if you know him, you know him, you've trusted in him, but you're not right with him. You're one of those people that we described in the first part of the study. You're, you're just not walking with him. You need to live in the power of the resurrection because there is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in his resurrection. He can break every single chain. He can free you and give you victory every single day of your life. If you need that, we'll be up here to pray with you and encourage you.